Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN, Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? He's trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. Uh, you could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> good afternoon, good morning, good night, whatever time of day it is. Entrepreneurship and Leadership NBN channel listener. Welcome to our podcast. And we have a very special guest today, Mungo Kulemans, the CEO of PMR. How are you today, Mungo? Very well, Richard. And I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to be here today. It's uh, kind of exciting. Um, something that I haven't really done before in this particular uh, area, which is entrepreneurial. I've attended a number of entrepreneurial um, events, etc. But this would be my first podcast for entrepreneurs. And we're not alone because Kimon's on the call. How are you doing today, Kimon? Good. Can't complain. Uh, Mungo's our buddy, to, so everybody knows. Uh, we, uh, Richard and I, so, you know, just uh, full transparency. Richard and I are shareholders. Um, <laughs> in In Mungo's company, basically. Um, so I actually founded the company... And uh, Richard and I both took turns uh, being CEO of the company over the various, it's been, uh, PMR has been around for, founded in 96. So it's been, it's been a long time. Um, we met Mungo. I personally met Mungo. What's it been now? Like two years, probably around two years. Uh, uh, around two, two and a half years ago, we met first time. Yeah. Right. Yeah, by, I, the way, I, by the way, we're recording this in January 2021. So if you're listen, listening to this in, or watching this on YouTube in some distant future when living on planet when Mars. Two years well, ago, well, when two years ago was 2025. <laughs> <laughs> two, years, two years ago was 2018-19. And um, yeah, so um, maybe we could talk about how we, how we first met. Mungo, do you remember our first meeting? Well, you guys are both comics. Yeah, it was, uh, it was one of those entrepreneurial things uh, that brought me together to, with, with Richard. Um, quite by accident, we met in a basement uh, at a stand-up comedy, um, Krakow Stand-Up Comedy. It's a local comedy club where amateur comics can test material. And I was trying uh, this for the very first time in my life, so it was interesting, and uh, I bumped into Richard. And uh, two years later, we business partners. Richard, was he funny? Um, let's say that I went up to Mungo after, after he had been on stage. And I, I, I think it, he was introduced, it was his first time. And I congratulated him because I remember the raw terror when I first went on stage to do stand-up comedy because I've done a lot of public speaking. And if you're giving a talk, a polite audience won't boo you and hiss and reject you. They just won't be very interested. But you don't get that feedback if you're doing stand-up comedy and you go on stage and no one laughs. It's as if they're booing. And I, truth be told, they weren't howling with laughter at every joke, were they, Mungo? <laughs> no, no, rejection was terrible. But, <laughs> but in general, it's, it's a learning process. And uh, I think it's just getting up there and seeing how you feel. I actually didn't intend to be on stage. Uh, that evening, I simply went there to to to. So you just improvised. Yeah, on the way there, I thought, well, if I'm going there and I'm gonna be sitting in the audience, you know, why not? Why not try it? And I just asked the lady at the door, "You don't happen to have any empty slots?" And she said, "Sure, we have one empty slot left." And that's how I ended up on stage. It was uh, 
just going with the moment. That's how that's how life flows. That's 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 interesting because uh, actually Richard uh, has very very often, and I think this is actually interesting for potentially interesting for business people. Richard has uh, tried to convince me to uh, to try it out, and uh, I actually am interested in it. And and I think that it requires. I think it's like way, actually you compared it. I think it's way harder than public speaking. Actually, like uh, it, it's kind of kind of different. You have to like really. I mean, you know, I'm sort of into comedy a little bit, so I've like listened to like comedians talk about the process. I mean, you have to like really really prep your material and like every minute, every pause, every like comma, like has to be like perfectly like time. And I don't know, I think, I think it's a kind of like, I think it's like really brave. And I think it's like a uh, useful, like if you want to push yourself and test yourself and get outside your comfort zone, Totally. Sounds like totally. a good thing to do. Totally. I was just going to say that, you know, this is as people who might sign up to think, why are these guys talking about comedy? I thought this was an entrepreneurship and a leadership channel. Um, entrepreneurship is about facing rejection and it is about getting out of your comfort zone quite quite often in different capacities and um so totally it, it is way harder and if anyone's listening is thinking oh i could never do that i used to think i could never do that and because i'm so often telling other people you have to do things you think you can never do that was one of my my things in the process but one thing we've all got in common is that we've um we're all foreigners who landed up in poland and Primarily, this is about you, Mungo, and maybe if you could like take us back a bit to maybe how sure. you how you how you landed up in Poland because we're we're, we're, probably, we're here in Krakow now, but you're yeah, I'm based in Krakow at the moment, but uh, but I've had a bit of a, a travel around the world. Um, I lived for two years in Germany, nearly four and a half years in Japan, and previous to that, I was in Poland, and previous to that, I was born in Johannesburg in South Africa. Um, growing up in South Africa, I think was, uh, I guess, for example, Elon Musk was born in the same year as I was, just uh, in Pretoria. And you're more and or less the same. You're, you're more or less as successful as Elon, just like uh, not no. quite as successful. I think Elon, Elon was a little. He had, uh, well, uh, he had a good start, a better start than I had. But uh, no if you had the same start, though, let's be honest, you would have been able to. Uh, if we'd had the same start, it would have been interesting. Yeah, you would have been. You'd have been on Mars, but you'd have been on Mars by now. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but uh, uh, hats off to Elon for, for what he's done. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, hey, you know what? We'll we're gonna send this on to him. Believe me, I, yeah. I know the guy. I got, I'll, I'll let him know. I'll let him know. Oh, it's kind of kind of nice to to see somebody else uh, out there doing some something great. Um, the but I think uh, growing up in a country had something to do with uh, creativity and the need to to perform. Um, it was a, a very a very difficult time because. Uh, uh, it, it was a, a time of enormous turmoil in the country. Things were changing. Firstly, it was a developing country from, from all aspects. You grew up, everything changed around you all the time. Uh, neighborhoods would change. You'd go, I used to remember when I was young, I'd go on holiday for three weeks. Uh, they, they, in, in, in the old days, uh, South Africa was shut down in December. So you had a four-week holiday. And um, you used to leave your, your town and come back and there'd be new buildings. They'd, things had changed. This was always impressing on me the need for change. And then the political changes came around, uh, which were even uh, uh, caused a constant motion of changes. And when I was in university there, uh, we were also having the changes where uh, it was the first steps where we had fully uh, 
fully mixed classrooms and things like that. And it was such a welcome change at the time. You mean um, mixed, you mean uh, interracial? Um, yeah, mixed racial, because it, 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 there, there was a kind of a situation uh, during the apartheid era where education was rather reserved or, or, or for, for, for uh, white, white So people. you were part of the first generation of kids? Yeah, we, we, were, we were in the in the university. We were the first generation. We really became uh, full, full, full. And were, was half the class black? I mean, what percentage of the class? Uh, it, was not, it was not that. It was more in the region of, say, 15%. Okay, uh, so it was really, because, and, yeah, it was really small. Uh, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. And I'm, I'm a person who loves people. And uh, I was bridging gaps. And that, that's another thing about entrepreneurship. It's, it's bridging gaps. Uh, bridging gaps, uh, whether they're cultural gaps, whether they are um, misunderstandings, whether uh, like, an, uh, like a role of an ombudsman, uh, getting people to do things together uh, who, who have different interests is, is always been a kind of fascination with me. And interest in people, uh, their backgrounds, what did they do? Uh, what motivates them? This is a, another fascination. And, and, did, and did that come from your? Fa- did that come from your family? I mean, if you describe your family, was it like that's the environment you grew up? Your fa- your parents were sociable and were having people over all the time, or was this more the, coming from within you? Where where do you see that coming from? If you look back to your teens or even before you were a teenager, I I, I can't really put my finger on that one. Um, uh, my father was quite a successful person. Uh, he was a, a sporty person. He did uh, a number of, uh, any number of marathons, uh, double marathons. Um, so competitive, 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 yeah? He was, he was quite competitive, yeah. Um, and he, but, but more, I think it was more around passion. For him, it wasn't about winning, it was about participating. And I think that that was kind of uh, rubbed off a little bit. Um, on the other hand, uh, did you play sports growing up? Uh, were you like, oh, yeah, yeah, I played uh, uh, any number. I was, uh, I played soccer, cricket, rugby, uh, tennis, uh, windsurfing, surfing, uh, in any sport, volleyball, beach volleyball, any sport that was within access. I just used to love doing swimming. And would you have considered yourself more doing it for passion or did you like to win? How important was winning to you? Well, for me, the idea of participating and pushing yourself to the limit. For me, winning was not uh, successful. So the idea of pushing yourself to the limit, if you happen to be in first place, second place, third place, this, this was not actually that important. Uh, the, the, very, um, the, the challenge to oneself and to continually develop this was what was key for me. That was my driver. And if you happen to be on that first place. Um, so you didn't mind working really hard and having a great like personal result, but losing. Uh, learning to lose, I think, is more valuable than uh, being a winner constantly. But were, were you a winner? I mean, were, were you regularly getting the gold medal and like winning your, your city and your county and your... Did you play for South Africa? Yeah, what was your number one sport? We talked about all these sports. Which was your like... What, your, was your, what are you best at? What are you best yeah, what at? What was your main sport? Well, I was uh, at one stage uh, when I was in my early youth, I had a... I was really passionate about tennis. I'd sit on a court for uh, six, eight, ten hours a day and um, over the weekends, um, really just playing against the wall because nobody else was there to, 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 to play. And then I join into the games, but people would go and then I just sit against that wall, pushing myself, trying to get that shot perfect. And uh, I had a, a really good trainer at that time, Des. He was, uh, I think, number six in the country. 
Wow. I was on the ATP as well. And, uh, but, but I missed my career up there when I, I didn't warm up one, one day and I started to, to practice my serving. And around the 20th or 30th uh, serve, I, I tore my shoulder. And that was hey, the yeah, end yeah. of my tennis career. How old were you then? Uh, maybe around uh, 14, 15. Oh, wow. Then uh, second was also uh, running, yeah, uh, sprinting. That was also quite interesting. I was never on a, a regional level there. Uh, but then for uh, windsurfing, for example, I was representing the South African Defense Force uh, where I constantly, when I was, I kind of finished school early. And when I was 16, before 17, I was already in the army. And oh, so this is interesting. Hold on a second. Let's tell us a little bit about this. So you go to school for how many years? And then there's, an, there's a mandatory military service in the uh, there's 12 years. Yeah. And there was a mandatory, uh, mandatory military service. I wasn't maybe I was a bit young, but, but a lot of my friends uh, discovered that they could go to university and not go to the army. I didn't okay. really know about this. So I just went into the army. And I, okay. I went in for two years. I ended up spending 18 months, but most of that was spent in Namibia. And in Namibia, we formed a, a club uh, for windsurfing, uh, for speed, speed sailing and uh, regatta sailing. And we were representing, uh, a small group of us were representing the, the South African army in competitions, yeah. Did, so you, was, did, you, did, did you, when you look at your story, I mean, did the army have any, leave any impact on you in your life? Uh, uh, the, army, the army at that stage was, it was an unusual situation uh, where Namibia was under the pr protectorate of South Africa for, for many years. And I was there at the year where Namibia was becoming independent, changes again. Once mm -hmm. again, it was a country in change. And um, uh, they, you, it wasn't a typical army service because I sort of wandered around. I spent time in the in the legal office. I, spy, I actually spent a short time in the, the intelligence <laughs> section. I was in the military. I did special weapons training. Spying. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, we, we, we did a whole lot of, I, I, I learned about printing, running printing machines. Uh, we, uh, this is I mean, awesome. Wonderful. I think like every young person should do that before they go to college. I think, I think it was a bit of lucky. Uh, it was a bit of luck uh, in the scope of what I was able to do in that very short time. I went in for two years. I ended up spending 20 months. Yeah. And uh, they, they shortened the military service step by step until it was phased out. And now it's completely voluntary. Was it tough? Was it tough? Like sometimes these, these sort of military things are really like quite primitive, like sleeping in a barracks in a dormitory. Or... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, uh, of course, uh, for uh, the, the basic uh, in, in South African military, the basic uh, training was three months. And uh, this was standard for everybody. And uh, well, uh, I had to clean toilets. <laughs> So, so yeah, yeah, it's it, 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 and of course you have to crawl around on your your elbows and your knees, and you we had to march through the 30, 35 kilometers in the desert with twenty six kilograms on your back, and, and, and is it you learned a lot about it, your you learned a lot about your limits. And is it so, fair to say it's a kind of equalization thing? If you talk to Israelis or Swiss countries where there is this standard military service, a lot of people reflect that socially it's quite it's quite a good thing that no matter how rich or poor you are, you have this shared experience where ah. for a little bit you're equal. And is that, was that true for South Africa? Obviously Absolutely. White, white South Africans back then. Absolutely. I grew up in a um, upper, upper, uh, it was lower upper class, you could call it, or upper middle class, somewhere in that barrier. And uh, going to the army, uh, also in my school, I went to a technical school where I learned electronics, but in the same school, they were teaching motor mechanics. So 
and and uh, how to be a secretary and and things like that. So so the I, I met up in the school in my secondary school. I met up uh, with this amazing uh, uh, spectrum of life from from every. Um, from, from every corner, it was it was really interesting, and uh, uh, the the ray it was kind of like a good entry for the military because in the military you you were put into a barracks with just the the the, the most wonderful mix of people, and it helped me enormously in later life uh, how to talk to anybody anywhere anytime. After the military, I actually went and I, I worked in a, a factory. Uh, in front of machines, loading machines, grinding, welding, um, and cleaning machines. Coming back at the end of the day, I, I looked completely uh, covered in grease, and it took an hour or so to clean your hand because you you, you couldn't get the grease off your hands. Well, um, sorry, 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 to, sorry to interrupt, Mungo, but one of the nice things about this this process of going through people's life journeys is trying to figure out why they did what they did. And you reflected that other of your colleagues or your schoolmates went off to university and somehow you weren't told or you, you just drifted into the army. It was like, what happened to you? When you, that decision to get that job, why did you do that? Not go to university? Uh, well, basically, what was the motivation? Uh, a little bit complicated. Uh, my father, uh, he had uh, invested with his uh, brother-in-law in this, in this, uh, company which had any number of quite expensive machines and they did things and my father was quite hard so uh, he when I came out of the military uh, he was working too hard he should have retired and uh, my mom had asked me to to can you can you get in there and convince your dad to to retire so I went in there with the goal to to get my dad to 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 get out of that business and to 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 go to retirement, which which was successful, and I ended up spending nearly two years there. Um, but then, when did you? I'm getting confused. Where did college happen in all this? College happened. Oh, that, that came later, and also okay. when so I was older. There, or you were older when you went to college then. Uh, not much older because I had uh, uh, 20 months in the military. I was then uh, 19 years old when I came right. out. So I, I 16, nearly 17. Then at uh, 19, I was in the factory. At uh, 21, I was out and uh, went into started uh, university. university at 21. Okay, I went. I went into the university because I was. Um, I guess uh, I'd achieved my goal. My my dad consequently left there, but I also uh, felt the need for knowledge. I'd always loved knowledge. I, as a student, I was I was a relatively adapted school, so I received the 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 uh, top student or whatever at, at school, but. I'd, I'd got tired of tired of knowledge for some reason. It just was easy and simple. And I know it sounds uh, very blasé, but I was uh, uh, school was too easy, and I needed some challenges. And then after that, suddenly I had this need for knowledge. I just like a, a sponge. You just wanted to learn. So I went back to to university, and I actually wanted to do architecture um, as as an architect. But uh, when I sometimes in my life I've done things very haphazardly. So I just go. So uh, one of my friends said that he's going to university. So I said, okay, uh, I'll go with you. So I started knocking on the doors in the university. What courses are open? And, and I went to the architecture first, uh, depart, architecture department. And they said, sorry, uh, six months ago, all of the people had already applied. And there's no positions here. So then I went, well, I'll go to the mechanical engineering. Sorry, four months ago, all the applications received, it's full. And Completely by accident, I came across the industrial engineering department, which was a complete new studies. Nobody was signing up. 
because nobody knew what an industrial engineer was. An industrial engineer is to, to design things, to improve systems and so on. And I said, well, this sounds great. And just went straight in, signed in and uh, a week later I was studying. And how long did that, what was the, how long did, does that take? After, uh, uh, in South Africa, you have a, uh, you have six to eight months, or this is in this type of university. You have the universities and you have uh, technicons. They were called back then. Now they've merged them. Um, but here is a practical uh, university. I call it a practical university directed into the engineering sciences. And okay. uh, here um, you had a three or five years. Um, I was going along and in there, you also have practical sessions working in companies. So you have uh, blocks and at the same time to, to, to pay for university, because I was a little bit stubborn. I didn't want my parents help. I didn't think that I could ask them. So I just wanted to do everything on my own. So the, I was working in a restaurant, uh, as a waiter in the first year, then a barman, then I was running the bar, then I was running the restaurant. So at the end of my, my three years, I was, uh, on the weekends, I was running a restaurant with uh, 250 heads, uh, 100 people in the bar um, from, from A to Z with a staff of maybe 25, 30 people. That was also very beneficial for me. That's what I was going to say, Mongo. Which is a better, which, where did you learn more, in the restaurant or at university? I would bet at the restaurant. <laughs> Actually, the, the, uh, both, because the, the, the university was teaching me systems, uh, systematics, yeah. uh, consequence, um, planning. Uh, finance. We did. We had the weirdest courses. We had managerial finance. We had uh, uh, layout, factory layouts. We had uh, motivation schemes for people working in companies. So later in your career, you found that education to be whether it was your entrepreneurship journey or your leadership when you worked in corporations. You found that education to be valuable, or because as I said, I, I it was I absolutely wonder... absolutely yeah. awesome. You know, but in the, the university, my my professor he wanted me to stay there. Uh, and then to, to work for the university, uh, specifically in mathematics. Uh, so, so my mathematics professor, he was saying to me, listen, can you, can you stay on and uh, do your master's, et cetera, and then move into a doctorate? And I said, no, I, I'm, I need to, to go. To I've Poland. got things to do. <laughs> uh, no, no, I just had things to do. I wanted, we'd, we'd, uh, with some friends in the uh, last year of studies, We'd been doing uh, quality systems as well, so ISO. And at that moment, ISO was a very hot subject in South Africa. So I said, well, uh, with another guy, Grant, and another guy, Aheno, we, we, we're putting together this company, which was going to uh, audit companies and prepare them for ISO so they could export their products. So you did that? You set up that company? Yeah, we, we set up the basis for the company. We got the first customers. Um, and then, actually, I met my, uh, my ex-wife now. And uh, yeah, I how did you meet her? At university, <laughs> why he's giggling? He's oh, giggling. Richard, Richard, he's Richard. We need to dig into this one. <laughs> this, that giggle conceals a guilty secret. <laughs> no, it was it was good, and, and we, we, we. I'm not disputing whether it was good or not. I loved how he glossed over with an "it." It was good. But what was good, Mungo? <laughs> I was uh, meeting meeting somebody to to share a good part of your life with was was uh, actually wonderful, and. Uh, then I, I ran into her father and I found out a, a rather tough situation. Her father was moving. Uh, Poland had opened up. Uh, so Poland communism had fallen down. So what year uh, is this? Just give, give us a... Give us a 92, sort of a... 93. Yeah. And Poland had uh, been falling to pieces. Uh, sorry, communism been falling to pieces. Poland was open. It was a free market from 89 to, to 93, 94. And uh, uh, he basically, he was an immigrant. 
uh, who had moved from, he had run away from communism, moved to Poland. So how oh, interesting. So he'd been living for a long time. So she was actually, your ex-wife was actually quite South African. Uh, my, she had the culture. In, my, my ex-wife was born in South Africa. Yeah, so right. So she, culturally, culturally, she was quite South African, I guess, growing up with education and yeah, yeah, of course. all the customs. Yeah. And, yeah, interesting. I so, didn't understand that. No, and it, it was quite, quite interesting then uh, because the, um, I was informed basically that they were moving to uh, Poland. And therefore, my, my ex-wife would uh, not have contact with them. So uh, at the same time, he said, why don't you come over and, and come over to Poland? And previous to that, two years earlier, I traveled through Europe on a short holiday and I fell in love with the, the museums. I fell in love with the, the theater, uh, the, the architecture. From an architectural point of view, it was just stunning for me because I, I traveled through from Berlin to Paris to London. Um, and um, then I also traveled in Poland and, and this European culture just was amazing. Uh, for, for me. And I decided, well, okay, let's move. Again, one of these just, let's just do it. So uh, it took about a month to, 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 to get ready, buy tickets, and we were in Poland. That's, that's how it started. And then, so this is, what, 93, you said, Baron? Uh, this was uh, 95. I was in, okay. uh, I think it was uh, March 95. What happened to the ISO consulting business where your business partner's a bit gutted that you were sort of... No, yeah, you know, if you've just started something, you've just started something, you've just got the first customers, um, you know, things, things are fluid. I believe that they took that business on, made it very successful. So for so, me, it was, so, uh, I had nothing to, to, I had a house, uh, which I, which I sold. Uh, and uh, while I was studying, I'd, I'd, uh, uh, my father was quite gracious. He gave me a deposit on a house and uh, left me with the bond. <laughs> so okay. I was paying off a bond while studying and paying for my studies. Yeah. So anyway, uh, the, after that time, I just sold what, what I had uh, and just, okay, so Mongo, we had, we had uh, three suitcases. Yeah. Paint the picture. How old are you? And basically, basically sell your, you sell your, uh, you, you get rid of your business, you sell your house, you move to Poland. And this is really when the story begins, I, I guess. How, how, old, how, how old are you uh, at this point? At that stage? Wow. Uh, let me just think. Uh, 21 minus 95. <laughs> That's 26 years ago. So I was 24 years old. Okay. So look at that, young. So anyway, they, then then we we went into this business, and uh, actually uh, he had painted the picture a little Which bit business? more pretty yeah, than yeah. it was uh, because I came into a company there that we had no turnover, zero. We don't know what the business is. You haven't told uh, us. What it the was a is. distribution, a distribution of automation, uh, automation products. So, and at that time, I still don't know what the business is. Uh, uh, <laughs> so you have uh, uh, factory automation products, FA products. These okay. are kind of like controllers, which uh, control uh, production yeah. lines, and like uh, these controllers which control motors, how they turn, and uh, so you, like you switching, it from switching an, you on buy it from uh, you buy it from an importer. You're uh, we, we had a, we had a very, I was very very fortunate at that stage to 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 meet to uh, uh, to cooperate for many years with a wonderful company called Mitsubishi Electric Corporation, and uh, this was maybe one of the most important important parts of my life for for more than 20 20 20 odd years was uh, building up and a relationship with so many wonderful people within a within a corporate while being a distributor and also uh, building up a distribution was was quite interesting we started in a 30 35 square meter flat 
three people, which were uh, my, my ex-wife, my father-in-law and myself. We slept there in the evening and we had an office during the day. So we really started from, from zero. What about your, what about your mother-in-law? Uh, she came later. And you, she lived in the, in the flat together with you guys? Uh, no, when she moved over, there was like nine months later, she moved over. Um, we moved out with my, with my ex-wife. We moved into a small uh, apartment. Um, again, I think it was also 35 square meters or something. Uh, they moved to, to an apartment and then we had the office that it became an office office. Okay. There was no beds there. <laughs> uh, just, just to set the scene for people listening back then, things were a bit different in Poland and, and my, my... Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it it was it was kind of kind of uh, if I can say a few words here because it's kind of kind of really interesting. Uh, when when I when I was in South Africa, you didn't go to a bank. Everything was done via ATM. Your deposits, your withdrawal, your account payments. Uh, the beginning of internet banking was already there. South Africa in in ninety five ninety six had ninety six had one of the most modern banking infrastructures in the world. Um, and the business infra infrastructure was quite quite advanced. Then we came to Poland, where uh, we paid people in cash, uh, in little envelopes, and you used to have it like a, every month there would be a list, and you used to stand in the a queue for a bank for four hours to get the money or to deposit money which you got from a customer in cash. So so and then to make a telephone call, this was quite interesting. Uh, you couldn't keep a, a telephone conversation going for more than 60 seconds because you were cut off. There was a very limited amount of telco in the country. So you'd be having a conversation, just, just starting that conversation with the customer and boom, beep, beep, beep. Yeah. <laughs> do, you remember those AB, do you remember those ABC coins? Yeah, <laughs> coins. They wasn't money. They were called jetons. They were called yeah, jetons. Jetons. Yeah, jetons. And you had to buy them for money. You just they, reminded me of them. That's, that's quite funny. The, 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 the C was the fat one. I guess that gave you the the, the longest conversation. It was it was it was a conversation. Yeah, I can't but remember. I just, just, I just want to reflect on the business opportunity because my, my first business, we were doing something completely different, sort of automatic identification equipment. But the business opportunity was connected with the fact that Poland had just opened up. So quite serious international companies like Mitsubishi or maybe others were ready to do business with three people living in an apartment to sell their products in Poland. And these days it's a bit harder to do that, I guess. Um, Would that be I, I'm not so sure because uh, when Mitsubishi Electric was a Japanese company and uh, for Russia, there was something called the COCOM restrictions. So during a communistic time, when the USSR was this great area, actually Japanese companies were not allowed formally to export to these countries. So what we thought was a, a good opportunity turned out to be extremely difficult because nobody had any clue who this company was. If you went to the US, everybody would know Mitsubishi Electric. They'd know Mitsubishi Motors and Mitsubishi Electric. You went to Germany, people would be aware of it. In Poland, nobody had ever heard of this company because the products never got there. So uh, it was the real challenge was building up this image that this is a quality supplier. And at the time as well, you had cheap products from Asia. So Mitsubishi Electric was a technology provider with incredible, incredible um, uh, quality, but it was perceived as a cheap Asia, which was, which was incredibly difficult to build up and educate customer about the value uh, of, of what they are buying. 
So tell us a little bit about, so you, how did you get the, so who actually signed, because I'm a little bit confused because it's just, it sounds like you were the main distributor for Mitsubishi Electric and that was the big sort of thing that happened. But how did you get, you moved to Poland, you're sitting with, you know, <laughs> this 35 square meters, you guys are living and working, but how did, who, who created the initial relationship and how did you get the well, initial relationship? It's, it's kind of interesting because uh, her father uh, in South Africa, he had had a project business. And one of his major suppliers at that time was uh, Mitsubishi Electric for electrical components. Um, they were, uh, okay, in, in retrospect, they were a, a medium-sized customer. But he had met one of the senior managers of, of Mitsubishi during a business trip. And uh, he wanted to get back to Poland, but he didn't have a basis on, on what do you do in Poland? What do you do after being out of the country for 25 years? What do you do? You need somebody to support you. So he went to this Japanese guy, Mr. Um, Matsushita, actually Mr. Yamashita, he, he was his name, a very dear friend of mine. Uh, later, unfortunately, he passed some years ago. He unfortunately uh, eating a rice ball, he choked to death. And uh, this was a very unfortunate passing. He was the most incredible leader. And this is also something which is important. I, I've been able to meet the most incredible leaders through my life. So anyway, this relationship was there and uh, he, he presented some business plan to, 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 to Yamashita. And uh, Yamashita basically, um, he, he looked at this and he said, but you have nothing there. And, and uh, my, my, uh, uh, my father-in-law, the, my then father-in-law, he just said to me, listen, please just give me a chance. And, and this guy believed in him. With, with nothing, just with a three, P, three or four page business plan, really basic. Nice. Let's give this guy a chance. Okay, honestly <clears throat> speaking, the guy had nothing to lose. Right. Nothing to lose because they had nothing. That's, in how, that's how you got the relationship. That's how you got. So then, so basically, so now you're in Poland, you have the product to sell. Yeah. Now you're faced with the challenge of how to get people to, <laughs> yeah. to buy it. That was the interesting <laughs> part, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> suddenly we, 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 we think we're on a great opportunity. You go to the customer and they say, what? Who <laughs> and you and these products? And so, who are, are you? So, you're so I understand these are going to factories. So, like, who is your target client? Like, what we, uh, to be honest, we also had a second company, it was a South African company because during my studies, I'd also learned about a system called a SCADA. This was a supervisory control and data acquisition software. And uh, I had uh, I went on trainings there and uh, we brought that, we also imported that product to Poland. So, it was a software. Uh, uh, managerial software solution for production management. And we, this was also a very new thing in Poland because most of the factories in Poland at that stage were extremely primitive, no automation and no softwares. So we were really chased with like a, a double, I think it's a process of educating customers was, was most important. So I don't know how many trainings I did for customers on this. And then also robotics, I became a, over the time I got fascinated by robotics and I learned a huge amount uh, uh, about Mitsubishi's robots. And we were uh, setting up laboratories in the universities to, to educate people on automation. So, so I went through, I met the most incredible professors working at universities and uh, they, they were really inspirational for me. Uh, and together we were working on education programs for young engineers who would later come into the workforce and hopefully transform the country. And to a large extent that happened. And I'm incredibly proud of the opportunity I had to work with uh, 12 of Polish universities setting up automation laboratories within, within, their, uh, within, their, within their spec. I worked on their curriculums. 
it was it was amazing. <laughs> was that was that? I, I sort of still want to go back to like I'm Mr. Like basic business guy here, I, but uh, so that sounds like a really good idea to get sort of uh, to to beat the awareness issue. Like I guess if you're in unit for twelve universities, well, they also bought. They also bought equipment. <clears throat> but I assume that they would also be like using. Oh, this is the good. You know, you would be showing that they, they would get to know the name. They would get to know your name. They would get to know the name of the uh, of the of Mitsubishi Electric. But so, what did the actual? I mean, because I, I just I've always find the beginning fascinating. Like you're sitting there for, in for a small six apartment. months. It took. How did you uh, get? Yeah. Your first it took six months. Uh, it's so funny. It took us six months, six months to sell one piece exactly. of switch gear. Exactly. And how did is, it look? What was the process? What did you do for six months? Uh, uh, basically, we were rejected at every single door. Nobody. Oh, you were knocking on doors. You were making phone calls. You're putting uh, out a in a car. Uh, in those days, there were very small cars, and uh, we were sitting in a car traveling across the country. Uh, with a couple of demo pieces of equipment in a little maluch. I don't know if you you remember those cars. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the Fiat One Two Sixes. Yeah. yeah uh, and we would we would travel around, and uh, we had uh, two 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 company cars. One was a maluch, and the other one was a, a red Fiat uh, Panda or Uno. Polonaise, maybe. The Uno was the, no, the, no, Uno. the the Uno was the 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 the, the really uh, fancy the premium. Car. The premium. Yeah, it was a premium. Yeah. I think I did. A, I think I did a, a, just over. Uh, oh. In that Uno, I did about six hundred and fifty thousand kilometers, and and just traveling. <laughs> That's incredible. No, but I mean, this is for this is what because I always find this part. This is the fascinating part that nobody ever talks about. I mean, it's like the, you you talk to successful people, but like it, Mongo drove six hundred fifty thousand kilometers around Poland in the and early nineties. Six 90s. months to your first That's customer, like, and you exactly. don't you don't you don't know it's going to work at the beginning. You believe no, exactly, it. exactly, exactly. And uh, what was also what was also interesting is that the very first thing we sold was a, a piece of switchgear. Actually, my father-in-law got the sale. I, I, I'm not taking the credit for that one. He sold it. You know what we did? We bought a bottle of champagne, which cost more than the. the <laughs> Drank <laughs> because we'd sold something. We, we, there was some hope, but there were moments. Then, so then, basically, you guys grew this business, I guess. From maybe yeah, there were moments. Uh, uh, maybe you... maybe four four years into the business, uh, there was a serious moment where he just said, "Listen, he wants to stop. He wants to leave." Go Only back. after four years. Wow. Yeah, he had, he had had enough, and uh, because he he had it down. But that's that's the thing about partnerships. At some stages, I'd also had enough. You know, mm. that's the importance of partnerships. You need to lift lift each other up. Yeah. So this this was important through through the time. So we we managed to. Uh, I learned quite a bit from him as well, uh, because please understand, I came into a country where I didn't speak a word of the language, so I had to sell. In a language which I couldn't speak. That could be that could be a challenge. And, and, and for any of our listeners, if you think that sounds hard, it is. <laughs> it is. So over the over the time as well, we managed to learn. And uh, actually, during this process, my my ex-wife supported a lot, and was quite understanding. Because uh, if I must uh, give a good word here, because uh, in those first three years, four years, it was hell. Compared to her life in South Africa, a completely uh, crash of level uh, to to really low level, and uh, there was no supermarkets, there was no cosmetics, there was nothing. And then she was still working next to us, doing marketing issues, running the store, whatever. And uh, the fact was, uh, uh, really a good support in those first few years to to get through the uh, the most hard times, you could say it. But uh, you know. I've always been in a kind of a way, maybe I could have been a, a better in, in some ways uh, from, a, from a family point of view. 
Um, but my fascination is with what I do. So I tend to be completely focused on what's in front of me. And uh, then, then the world just disappears and time just passed. It grew. And then we started uh, forming a group of companies. So uh, we went from... Uh, Wait, hold on a second. I just need, I need to understand. And you say time has passed. This is kind of important. So four years, first of all, your father-in-law, you, I assume you're married now, your father-in-law um, says I've had enough. So what happens? You take over this company? Like, what, no, no, no. Uh, he, he, at some stage, he had, he had been down. I picked him up. And at some oh, stage, I got down and okay. picked me up. Okay, okay, so no, he continued. You're partners. You're partners yeah. all the time. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, frankly speaking, in the very first uh, two, three years, there was more a promise of of, of partnership. Yeah, uh, it was kind of my my move to Europe was to be in Europe. I wanted to know Europe, mm. and I got to learn Poland. <laughs> right. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't Poland, quite is, Poland is part of Poland is part of Europe, but I mean, so, uh, but even you know, you're married to this guy's daughter. So I mean, was there? I mean, did you guys have some kind of a, like four years in, you're not an owner of the company at that point? Well, it's it's something specific to family businesses. Yeah. So we shared the profits, etc. So this was the. It's it's kind of like that family business environment, which 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 happened. And then uh, roughly, uh, what was that, 95, we, not, formerly the business was registered in, in late 94, 95, I was in with my wife, there was three of us. Then a couple of years later, um, uh, her younger sister joined the business and her mother also was helping in the business. Yeah. Oh, wow. But then we also had, a, um, she was the debt collector, <laughs> mother-in-law who's a debt collector, uh, but she was efficient. <laughs> <laughs> but the, then uh, we, we decided uh, we need to grow faster. So we had a challenge, how to grow faster. So we formed a, a group of companies and this was quite interesting experience as well. Uh, going to, to, to companies and uh, existing companies or people who really could be good shareholders and forming companies with them. And uh, we, in total, we had uh, six, seven companies after maybe uh, just thinking uh, up to 2007. Um, some we entered, we exited, so uh, acquire part or invest into, then exit. Others we we kept, and the big moment came when uh, I guess from a from a um, return on capital came when we sold uh, sold the, the 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 main company to to um, Mitsubishi Electric, our main partner. We divested uh, other companies, um, and uh, because at that time I was also developing relationships with suppliers, so uh, I increased our supplier base to uh, Taiwan. Uh, to US, so I, uh, I went over and I signed agreements with, or negotiated and signed agreements with uh, vision system companies. Uh, so so um, industrial vision systems. Um, also, I increased the, uh, I changed our supplier for the, for the skater systems to a Dutch supplier. Um, I went and flew out to Taiwan, I identified three uh, other suppliers for, for ball screws and for, uh, planetary gearboxes uh, in Taiwan. I also met up with an incredible company. Um, you did it, basically, you did a lot. You, you, no, you it was fun. And, and again, just for the listeners, that this if you don't have that much capital representing foreign companies in your home market or in the market you're in, that, that used to be a very good business opportunity. It still is, although pre-pervasive sort of pervasive internet, 
people, the internet, that you really needed a country distributor to, to, to service the market, to communicate with potential customers. These days, if you, like a, a vision company like Cognex, will have multilingual website and can actually interact with customers directly all over the world, and it's a, there's less of an opportunity. But what you were doing was a tried and tested thing that's been done right. for hundreds of years. You represent company A in market B, and you, you were optimizing the people yes you chose. No. Yes, yes and, and no. no. So you're, not example, you're not disagreeing with me, Mungo, are you? No, no, it's yes yes and no. <laughs> so uh, that is a traditional model, but how you do it, how you execute is very, very important. Sure. And uh, for some companies, I treated each relationship very personally. So so with my uh, relationship with Meanwell, I, I would know the guy, Jerry, he was the, the company president reasonably well. And we'd, we'd have good dinners and discuss business together. And we were discussing about setting up production facilities in, in Europe and quality systems. Same with the, with the other uh, uh, suppliers. With Mitsubishi, we were setting up training centers. Um, we were setting up after-sales activities, authorization. So it, it was not just the product. It was a whole, whole range of things. Um, and then uh, I guess um, mm, what was really interesting for me was setting up uh, companies which were executing projects. So you'd have, these, you'd have this equipment, but you can't just put a, a little box into a factory and it works, you have to integrate that technology into the factory. And uh, two of the companies which I, which I uh, helped to create uh, were doing end-to-end uh, -end projects from uh, uh, perceiving customer need from automation or identifying the automation needs through to delivering complex machinery into the automation. Mungo, I, I'd like to sort of fast forward to the text. You started to talk about something that I thought that I think is like super interesting, which is the exit. So, and how, like to talk a little bit about that. Cause you said that you well, finally saw uh, the exit was kind of like, this is, uh, I saw that my, uh, my father-in-law was approaching uh, retirement age and uh, he, he just wanted to keep going. But at the same time, I saw his health deteriorating and uh, bearing in mind the previous situation with my own father, who would, really was killing himself in that factory uh, because he, he, he was a part owner of the company, but he worked on the machines. Right. And this guy was also really pushing hard. And I thought, you know, this is, this is a, a time where we should consider. It was also uh, during the economic crisis, 2000, uh, coming up 2007, 2008. So together we sat down. I said, well, let's see, because uh, we have to be careful here. We, we've got, say, 60% of our turnovers coming from a single supplier. And that supply needs to expand within Europe. So one of the logical ways is they need to set up shop. And Poland's the sixth largest economy. They're going to set up shops in or later. So let's talk to them differently and see how we can do this together. And that's what started the, the discussions. And those discussions took two years. I can't go into the details because I'm still under uh, secrecy agreements. But that, that, the negotiations took two years. Yeah, but like even high level, because I'm always sort of curious, can you say what kind of a multiple of revenue or even no. there any, not, there's no kind of. Um, I cannot mention any mention of the details. I've got a, a more than 15 years on that. But they, the fact is they, they came in and one of, one of my biggest concerns when, when actually uh, stepping out, because it wasn't, there was a condition of purchase of company is that I had to work for that corporation for minimum five years. That was the condition. Otherwise, there was no deal. Okay. So that was the condition of moving, which also was quite painful because I had to step out of some companies where I had been helping and driving in some way and, and helping 
you know, it was a very painful process for me. So to did this, in fact, was my babies, you know? <laughs> yeah, this was like the beginning of your corporate, because you had, this is, we'll call it your corporate. Uh, career, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so it's a very first step in, in there. So let's just say they, they acquired this. I divested companies. We managed to keep some property companies and uh, some uh, subsidiaries we, we managed to keep, uh, but we sold the, the, the core. And um, then um, going to the uh, working in, in inside this corporation, right? So the first job I got was, okay, restructure the Polish organization. You move from a single distributor. I, I set up um, multiple distribution channels. Then uh, I got thrown into four countries, Poland, Czech, Slovakia, Hungary. Then um, they asked me to take care of the region. So this took around two years. So one year, Poland, the next year, the region. Um, and then they said, listen, we would like you to come to Japan. Um, and again, it was, a, it was a discussion. I was having a wonderful dinner in Tokyo with the, with the management of the factory automation division. And they, they, these are board member and uh, the, the directors of that division, which is uh, in, in real terms, it's, they do uh, just over that team was responsible for $16 billion of revenue. And uh, they, they asked me, listen, at the table, they just said, listen, we'd like you to come to Japan. And I phoned to my, my ex-wife at that stage. I said, listen, uh, they asked me to come to Japan and uh, are you, can, can we go? And she said, she said yes. Uh, but then I gave the phone to my wife, the phone to the, the board member. And he, he said, listen, do you mind if, if my son come to Japan? And would you like to come to Japan? And, and she said, yes. In retrospect, this was maybe too fast because I always make these decisions fast. And uh, moving to Poland was our, our common idea, but moving to Japan was more, uh, they invited us and it was just not right to say no. Also an incredible opportunity. We had young kids at the time and they offered to, to bring the whole family over. So we, we took it. And uh, it was supposed and what, to be- What was it like? What was, what was living in Japan like? Well, you know, I was working, <laughs> but uh, in Japan, uh, there was the work life and then there was the, the private life. And- uh, did, did you learn any Japanese? <laughs> I learned to speak Japanese. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm, my Japanese is not that good now because it's been it's been now five years and I haven't really used it. So, but yeah, I, I did. Uh, I can't say I speak fluently. Um, I can say that I could communicate uh, on a basic level in in Japanese language for business purposes. So the um, so then you worked there for a while, and then you ended up in Germany. I was supposed to come. I was supposed to be there two years. Uh, after two years, they said please stay another year. Then after two years, so what I did there was interesting. I was uh, initially I was the assistant marketing manager for export department, so we were responsible for for about eight billion. But and, Monkey, uh, just before you talk about what you did, maybe how did it feel to move from this sort of small, medium-sized owner managed business? To being part of one of the largest Japanese conglomerates. I mean, it's well, a, right. and it's then a in huge, Japan, and then and, in Japan. I mean, because just... it's it's such a change. I mean, I I briefly before I went to university worked in large companies, but I, you know, I, I, I to this day I wonder whether I would manage if I had to do that to move from so like well, small. Honestly, honestly, in the beginning, I, I was uh, um, I'm in awe of of that corporation in general. They they're the most kind. A wonderful group of, of, of friends. And they, they, I think a lot has got to do with companies. So, so Mitsubishi Electric as a corporation is an absolutely unbelievable company. And, and the, the people treated me with 
incredible respect. I tried my best to, 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 to return. But yeah, I was a little lost because as an entrepreneur, you, you are able to, to really move forward fast, do things. Within the corporate world, uh, everything operates around the meeting and the meeting and the meeting and the meeting and the meeting. So you have meetings and meetings and meetings and meetings. And uh, what I tried to do there was to bring change. I tried to bring innovation. I tried to, to challenge um, uh, how things were done, which I, w- I was pretty disruptive. Uh, how many people liked me or didn't like me? I don't know, but I was invited to dinners and, and they asked me to stay longer. So, so I guess I wasn't that, uh, that much of a, a hindrance. And after there, there's a thing about foreigners in Japan, at some stage you have to go back. Yeah. So then I moved back to, uh, I was supposed to go back to Poland, but again, two weeks before, before leaving, or it was a month before leaving, they just told us, okay, uh, you need to go to Germany. The, the local manager in Germany, he, he said, either you come to Germany or there's no job for you coming back. And it was kind of brutal. Uh, that, that I didn't like, uh, honestly speaking. And in, in retrospect, that particular uh, person, uh, well, I, I have a controversial opinion <laughs> regarding his subject. Uh, but but they, not everybody in Mitsubishi is wonderful, put it that way. Okay, so anyway, you get to Germany and basically, let's just short circuit and get to, to the, the, the next entrepreneurial stage here. So you basically just, maybe you can just quickly, you basically, you stayed there for a short period of time and you ended up just leaving the company, I guess, and coming back to Poland. Yeah, if, if, let's come back to Japan a little bit. What, what Japan gave me was incredible. I traveled to uh, 40 countries. So I was responsible for export of the product. So I traveled the entire world in the time. I traveled to 36 major cities in China. I spent nine months of that time, at least nine months of that time, inside a developing China. Uh, I traveled to South America, North America, Africa, uh, Europe, uh, unbelievable, Southeast Asia. So it, it really was a learning experience. And I met literally hundreds of business people and I learned their stories. And I learned their challenges. And then, then I moved back to Germany and I got tasks with, uh, I was the uh, vertical uh, director of vertical industries for Europe, Middle East, Africa. That was my, 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 my task there. And there I was uh, implementing key account management and, and things like that. Then I came back, uh, but at that time, um, due to personal reasons, I won't go into those, um, I had to move back to Poland. And uh, uh, I moved back to, to, to Krakow um, uh, to take care of my family, yeah? who, who just could not adapt to life in Germany. So after one year in Germany, I had to move my family back to, to Poland. And uh, I was alone in Germany for a year. And after that year, I said, no, I'm, I need to be with the family. So I went back to, 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 to Krakow at that stage. And, uh, and then you, that's basically effectively when you were done with the whole Mitsubishi. Uh, at this stage, store. I decided uh, that's, that's, uh, that's my corporate. Uh, I, I'm a person of consequence. So when leaving the company there, I said, please uh, understand one thing. I will not get involved in, in uh, that uh, in, as a competitor or something in any aspect for the future. So and this I, is about 2018 or something like that. Is that yeah, when is this? Can you give us a, uh, put us into a date, date perspective? I was trying to look at that. It was two years, three years. Uh, yeah, around two to 18, somewhere, 217 to 18, somewhere around there. Okay, and then when, this is now we're approaching when we finally met you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I also wanted a midlife break because if you can imagine in Japan, we were working for 18 hours a day uh, and uh, every 
second weekend, we'd also be working. Um, in Germany, it was quite intense as well. So um, essentially, and in my private businesses previously, I was also putting in uh, 14 to, to 16 to 18 hours a day. So um, after 20, 20, 20 odd years, I was kind of, uh, I thought I need, a, I need a break to recharge the batteries because I've still got 20 years ahead of me. So you, you need to gather some steam. So I, I, I just said, I'm doing nothing for a year. And that lasted nine months. Uh, I actually said nothing for two years. It lasted nine months. And then I got involved in an incredible uh, <laughs> kind of like a blockchain type uh, uh, 3D printing uh, global franchise uh, concept. And uh, I, in there in, in nine months, we, we launched uh, 17 product lines and we uh, set up a global franchise and we, we did amazing things there. But that was in Poznan. Yeah. Because in the meantime, I had had a divorce from my, from my wife. And How uh, long did you do that for? That was nine months, relatively so. short. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was ready. And, to then, and then, and then we met. And yeah, then uh, I came back to Krakow and we met. Yeah. And this is okay. where we get to the most incredible company where I'm sitting today, which, which is PMR. <laughs> yeah, of course. I, I, yeah, I, I think for those of you who are listening to this as part of the, the, the video channel, you can see the logo behind Mungo. But, and PMR's evolved, and this isn't, a, this isn't a, a podcast about PMR, but just for the sake of our listeners, in a minute or two, could you just explain what PMR is, Mungo? Well, firstly, PMR was founded in 93, and it was the first... 96. Uh, sorry. <laughs> By Kimon. Actually, I think 2000, actually. Now 98, 2000. Anyway, whatever. No, no, no. We had, but the very first product that, that PMR uh, produced uh, was a English language Polish market review, which was, it was the only existing published material about what's happening in Polish business. It was, it was a, a kind of a genius concept at the time because Poland was a complete black box. Nobody knew what it was. And uh, Kimon came up with the idea, let's make a company that, that gives a basically published monthly or weekly uh, information in English about what happens in the market. Of course, over the years, it evolved uh, into, uh, into uh, a market intelligence company. So sector reports, we specialized in, in a number of what happened later was uh, specializing in sectors, getting detailed information inside sectors and packaging them in a report. And that was uh, PMR for a number of years. Then PMR started some uh, uh, consulting, uh, in a way, uh, rather dedicated market research projects. So a company would come to us, uh, this was maybe before I joined, would come to us and say, listen, uh, I need to know the size of this market for this product. And PMR would do it. And well, I need to know what the competitor environment looks like. PMR would make that dedicated research, present a report and sell the report. And uh, the, at the same time, PMR was producing these sector reports for the ICT, construction, retail, and uh, pharma industries, or pharma healthcare. And uh, then uh, I stepped in at, at some stage and uh, to a company which was uh, um, at that stage a little bit stressed uh, because there were so many dynamic changes happening in the market intelligence area. And we started a path of... Uh, how would I say a, a digital revolution in a way to, to, to bring the company forward into the 23rd century. And th this was quite important. And uh, we, we part of that. Uh, we, we're on our, our journey at the moment, moving from a, a company which was making probably the best analyst and forecasting reports in the market for those sectors to a company which is providing more in-time market intelligence. So we still do that. 
Our forecasting is probably the best in the market. And then uh, for, for each sector, for the construction industry to, or the ICT industry, data service, cloud, whatever, we, we, are, we, are, we are moving forward. And we, our, our, our specialists are highly appreciated on, on uh, specialist panels. They talk on the television stations and, and so on and so on on major events. But uh, for me, more important is, is the digital age. So um, moving just, 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 to, just, before, just, just to cut you off, because I'd like to go back to the deal that essentially Cumin's still the majority shareholder. You're the, I believe now, the second largest shareholder and yep. um, I'm a minority shareholder and there are a couple of other shareholders. But when, when we started negotiating the deal, I'm really interested in how did it look to you? Because there's a certain, what you did isn't, unusual there's a certain type of deal where someone invests money and then becomes the person in charge and but when when you started talking to me and then you met Kimon how did you feel about the deal what what you were negotiating because it's I, I, I think it's, it's, this is an experience which many listeners won't have had and you know it's, and like the numbers probably you don't want to go into the full details but no. how did you feel about the deal and what was yeah. what, what did it look like to you? One, one thing uh, over over the years, I'd I'd had a total of maybe uh, twenty six different partners uh, in in business. So so for me, uh, people are the 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 base of everything. People are bases of everything. Then then for me, the next thing is the product. What what is to be sold? That that's the next important thing, and uh, that's that's people from a partner point of view and people working in the organization. So what type of people, what is the quality of the people working in the organization? Um, product, what kind of a product, what I can do with that product, where we can go with the product is very, very important. And people from partners, what kind of partners? When I met Richard and Kimon, uh, if you had been different people, maybe I would never have invested. Uh, you are who you are. You represent a certain uh, system of ethics, uh, and professional business acumen, and this, this, uh, this, this. Uh, besides stand-up comedy, um, but but the the, the fact that um, who you are is more important for me because going into a business having good partners, uh, good shareholders, let's say, is very very important because that is the, that's the kernel, and if you if you have a, a wrong set of uh, shareholders. The business suffers. It's a stressful environment. It is really, really tough. So it's very those interesting. Those were the three things. things. Yeah, Frankly very, speaking, a very, very, um, maybe it's a different approach. Most people, uh, a lot of investors will be just looking at the, the financials. So they'll be looking at this. They'll be looking at, okay, what is that? Uh, what, is, what is the revenue? What's the EBIT? Uh, how much money I can make from my money? That, that's the typical approach to, to business. It's a good approach. Uh, obviously, I'm not here to to lose money either, yeah. But uh, for me, what I was going to be doing was also interesting. So, uh, how passionate could I be about this? Because passion drives uh, business. So, so the so the people, the product, and the role you were going to have, Kimon, you you were going to ask a question, make a comment, Kimon. There was a couple of things that strike me I did that I think are really interesting because I think and the last thing, uh, Richard, is the customers. <laughs> Uh, yeah, customers okay. is important. Okay. Let's let's let Kimon. Here's the, the majority shareholder. I think <laughs> he should have a right. Yeah, to but this is a podcast about Mongo. But uh, you said something that I think is interesting. That you guys, I've heard Richard, you say the same thing. And so it sounds like both of you guys had. See, I've been fortunate enough that I have two businesses, and Richard's basically been my my, my other shareholder. So I never had to deal with that. But I've heard both Richard and you now say. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't want to throw your, uh, you know, your other shareholders under the bus if they watch this or something like that. But I mean, I've heard, I've heard both uh, you, Richard, actually say had the importance of uh, good shareholders. And now Mungo himself, I, you know, I, maybe there was some stressful moments with your father-in-law and stuff like that that might have been difficult for various for various reasons. So I, I, I do think that, that that that's a very interesting takeaway. I'm just sure if you guys want to elaborate on that at all, because that 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 does strike me as something that might be. Um, who you decide to go into business with might be more, this is what I was hearing from Mungo at least, who you go into business with might be more important than how much you pay for that business and what, and, and what, what your investment, basic investment criteria is. To, to, totally. And I, I think that, you know, when we look at just what's happening in American politics, you've got the leader, but it's the team they choose and the character of the shareholders who choose the CEO and the character of the CEO who chooses the top management team or puts the management team together is so fundamental. And this isn't about uh, dumping on any shareholders in other businesses that are, who, who I'm in business with or have been in business with, but it's a question of alignment. And alignment isn't just about like basic things like you know corruption or sexism or racism, like are these people you even want to be in the same room as? It's also alignment about ambition because, and I do a lot of mentoring of uh, smaller businesses and startups. And you, know, you can have people on, at the stage you meet each other, it's a bit like dating your first boyfriend or girlfriend. You're so happy that someone wants to go into business with you. You don't look at it in terms of, you know, are we aligned in where we want to go? And one guy might be perfectly, it depends where you're listening in the world, but you know, it might be a couple of thousand dollars it might be five thousand, ten thousand dollars a month, and I've made as much money money as I want to make, and that's enough. One person's going to like put their feet up when they've made for them what's enough money. Other people will be motivated by ambition, by glory, and they take terrible decisions with respect to the profitability of the business because it's about ego, and they do things which you know all about looking cool or staying in the right hotels that have nothing to do with the value for the customer. Other people are driven by the quality of the service or the product or the team. And it's just making sure that the basics are in place because if you're not aligned on that, after a bit, things can just go completely wrong. And that's not even the due diligence on honesty and character. And there are some dodgy people out there. I've uh, And I, again, I'm not going to say n names, but some of the people listening know that, you know, the police, <laughs> the police or the tax authorities, to the best of my knowledge, are after them. <laughs> and, and so, so it's, it's, it's really... That's my perspective. Mongo, what about you? I think uh, for me, as I mentioned, when I was very young, uh, people fascinate me and uh, uh, they're important to me. So whether it's people who are working in the company, whether it's the partners, whether it's the customers, um, people are great in, in essence. Um, and then you have the, um, when you're working with something, I think i put the same emphasis on selecting partners as I would on a, on a potential partner in life, such as a wife or that that's, that's my, uh, your, your life partner and your business partner. You're going to spend more time with your business partners often, uh, or at least equal time. So it's, it's a very, very important choice. Um, of course I do admire people who do things uh, or admire, maybe it's too far, maybe respect people who just do things for money. Uh, so they don't actually care and they are just focused on getting their return and nothing else. And, and this, this is also a way of doing it. But I, I feel that uh, after some years, uh, perhaps you'll be in a position where you are not that uh, happy with yourself, with your life. 
and and the, in my 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 all my years of experience i don't think that there is uh anybody who would who would be completely unhappy because because they met me and i kind of would like to keep doing that going forward so uh of course uh this is uh in, in life life situations of various uh for example, during the middle of the, the COVID, we had to even, uh, even our company had to release some people. This was very painful for me. Um, but, but the fact is, sometimes you have to make decisions in order to, to keep things. Oh, let's, really give, let's give some, I mean, yeah. Mungo has been, okay. I mean, you, give yourself a pat on the back here. I mean, there's been a lot that's happened. I mean, Mungo joined in relatively soon after putting a bunch of money in the company and taking it over. Uh, we were faced with, the pandemic, which was a completely, it was a huge threat to this business because it's actually, these are the kind of services that are needed if you want to grow your business. But, the, but, you know, if you're, if you're, <laughs> if, if, if every company shuts down and is not, is into like, I'm not going to grow mode. Well, this company it was actually uh, susceptible to the pandemic. So Mungo not only led us through really soon after investing a bunch of money and like taking on this job he led us through that very difficult thing not, not, I, a, not only is it really tough to have to let a lot of people go also to manage that during the pandemic where you yeah. can't you can't even look people in the eyes to tell yeah. them you know that you're gonna right. have to exactly let them exactly go. you have to do that the whole process and, and and that but then apart from that i just wanted to add he managed in this pandemic year or toward the pandemic whatever, in 2020, he managed to put together a huge deal for the, com for the company that basically locks in a huge piece of the future. He brought two new shareholders in, working shareholders, um, that actually uh, one became our CTO. Which so basically, uh, I'm incredibly tech. I'm incredibly yeah, and then, chuffed yeah. with that. Um, uh, that, that Okay, firstly, the, the team brought us through. So really and truly, uh, the, the staff at, at this company is unbelievable. And they were the, 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 the cooperation and the, the integration and the willingness to, to fight was, was absolutely incredible. I, I take my hat off to, to every single member of, of PMR. Uh, thank you. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible team. And uh, then I was very, very fortunate to meet some, some uh, very, very talented and skilled uh, uh, business and technology people who um, coincidentally ha had a similar vision on doing something to, to that which, I was, which, 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 which we were thinking of doing. And, and, Mungo, uh, Mungo, I'm going to jump in and pay you a compliment here because I think everyone's got their different strengths and weaknesses. Everyone does. And one of the things you... Are good at is getting out and you talked about liking to meet people it's not just meeting people it's making a good impression and making people want to do business with you in some capacity it's obvious that you know and at a deep level and so somehow and, and there are different types of leadership but one way in which you've managed things and I, you're putting it down to luck but you know you can meet as many people as you like if you create the wrong impression it's not going to be it's not going to work right it's not it's more than just getting out there and meeting people so i'd say that you're obviously you didn't just make the luck but there was something about you that attracted people into the business obviously it's a mixture of what the company does as well as well as your personality but just as you wouldn't go into business with some people clearly other people wouldn't have gone into business with us if it wasn't for you so that that's to do of, with your character. i kind of think it's a gravitational uh, force of good in some way going to spiritual side of things the more positive uh, you are as a human being the more you do the more you're active as a human being uh, similar 
like attracts like, plus attacks, you know, it just attracts. So I think at some stage, uh, if you, you manage to maintain your, your, your drive forward and uh, you, you are, are, are trying to, to, to maintain a positive front going forward, seeing the positive light of everything, even COVID gave us incredible opportunities to learn, to, to, to evolve, to, to, to change. I think COVID brings this. Yes, it is a terrible disease. The the pandemic's terrible, but the 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 lessons we've learned, the 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 experience we've gained is is unbelievable. And this is this is positive coming out of this. And then being able to meet with these these particular two people. I mean, our new CTO, he he's a digital transformation expert, and that is exactly he's probably one of the top digital transformation experts in in Europe. And and he he decided to join our company, which which I think is incredible. And then we have a very very experienced uh, economist and and uh, a person who who started his career thirty years ago in market research. And to to meet these kind of people who are willing to not only put their, their time and effort but their money into the company as well is just so fortunate. I think luck does play a, a large a large. Oh, well, good because we're because this is one of my favorite questions, and and maybe we're heading toward wrapping it up. Um, the uh, how much how how big of a of an so sorry you've had this incredible career you've gone I mean and I'm sorry no matter what you tell me you've been resourceful you went into the army then you 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 worked in your father's company you set up your ISO company I mean you've been like you've been you know, brave you've been brave. yes very brave and 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 very and and obviously very hardworking. And, you know, and success has followed along the way. And, and I'm just, and I just like to ask this question and I'm curious what you think, like how much of this success and you're, you, you, you really have had great success. Can you attribute to basically hard work, intelligence, <coughs> natural ability, things that you learned versus luck and how much of it is actually luck? Do you believe that it is luck? I think, uh, I think passionate people to a large extent may always be fortunate. So, so hard work, passion, uh, honesty, um, ethics. I believe this is th- these are components which which, which draw luck. Yeah? So it's just just kind of a, a way to go. And uh, but it's also about attitude. You know, if the not everything in my life, for example, uh, just a personal experience. Uh, Ten years ago, I should be I should have died. I had a blood clot. I had a lung attack. Um, I should have been clinically dead yeah and i was in lying in hospital for 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 a month and uh, actually uh i don't even remember that and and uh i don't i didn't let that hinder me in any way i just you 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 have to drive forward so so you get out of this hospital and then you you just get back into it you just get stuck back in it i think my dad's lesson lesson uh, i think it comes down to two two things that i was taught at a very young age firstly nothing is impossible and perseverance uh, and there is no such a word as can't kind of I similar can. the two <laughs> Everything's possible. So, could, so those, it, that could be that could be described as delusional. <laughs> you want to get to the, you want to fly to the sun and back. No, but I, but I thank you very much. And because like this isn't this isn't a podcast aimed at finding truth. It's about telling personal stories and giving your perspective and it's your life and it's your view. I wanted to just ask about leadership and your because obviously a leader takes a group of people towards a, a common goal and you've had to really adjust the 
goals for PMR, partly as a result of the pandemic. By the way, in 2020, there was a terrible disease which swept the world and it disrupted business in every continent and disrupted society and many people died and it's not over yet. And that's, if you're not wondering what pandemic, just Google it. Google pandemic 2020 and you'll you'll find out everything from Wikipedia if it still exists in 50 years time. Uh, but Margot, what would you say are the components of uh, leadership in your mind in terms of the way you try to lead the group of people you're responsible for towards the towards the future what are the most important aspects for you um i would say amplifying people's strengths is important amplifying people's strengths uh finding a team which is able to supplement your weak points um and having a very clear goal in mind and being able to communicate that goal um, for the team to 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 really to really follow, um, there are, there are all types of leaders. There are leaders who are unbelievably organised, such as generals, um, who who have this uh, logistics uh, minute by minute uh, ability to 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 define a, a task list for groups of people. Or you have people who are, uh, to a certain extent, uh, not visionaries, but able to, to, to set a goal clearly and, and uh, amplify people's strengths in order to achieve that goal. Um, and then there is the, 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 the basics, which I, I really appreciated my time in Japan, which is a PDCA. So you need to plan, do, check, action, plan, do, check, action, plan. So planning, doing, checking where you are, make, taking action to make the next plan. And uh, I think that these, these, these few things can, can help with leadership. Personally, I don't think I'm a, a very good leader. Um, I, I see I have a huge uh, array of weaknesses. And I, am, I guess being self-critical is perhaps one of the, the most important aspects of leadership. Um, realizing that you, you are not, uh, um, you, you have weak points and, and trying to improve yourself the whole time. And I think these are these are all little pieces of, of uh, leadership, which which are which are, in in my opinion, of course, I'm just a I'm just an average guy. So the 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 at the end of the day, um, perception of leadership is the the best the best people to ask uh, are, are the people who who have chosen to to participate in the journey which you've created. Thank uh, you. Are you a good leader or not? Yeah. Thank you. And Keeman, is there anything that you'd add to that or things you'd comment on? Because Keeman, until recently, was the leader of Argos, which he built up from one and a half people in an office through to a world-leading company. And I'm really, and I've often observed how effective you were as a leader. And so is there anything you'd add to Mungo's list or comment on? I mean, it's, it's such a, for me, leadership is such a, um, intangible right it's just so hard to you can't really touch it and there's and, and as Mungo was saying there's just going to be different different kinds of leaders and different kinds of leaders are needed for different kinds of situations i mean you mentioned the american uh president now i think you know the that maybe in some ways because maybe biden isn't the most charismatic and isn't the best leader in a lot of ways but maybe he has something that the country needs right now is just like uh I mean, I mean, I don't want to get political here, and I'm not even, you know, I, I'm not even trying to say that. But I just, I guess that there's just different situations. 
Um, because I think very often we think of leaders as these very charismatic people that we see on television who are running dot coms and whatever are leading the world. But, you know, I think there's really just a lot of different aspects. And, and so totally. I don't have a I don't have a uh, I don't ha I don't have a formulaic um, answer for what for what makes for what makes a great leader. It's really it's really whatever gets the job done. Mm. is what makes a great leader and you know i, I think that you know and that's yeah. that's a, that's sort of a cop-out answer but it's a bit of a cop-out answer but as someone who has to <laughs> deli deli deliver workshops on leadership and i'm paid to do it at some business schools i, I, I would, I would ampl amplify one of the things that mungo referred to repeatedly not in his answer here is about his connection with people that in order to do the things that you said were important to amplify people's strengths you have to get to know people and a leader has to yeah. ha has I, to get to know the people who yeah. report to them I, if i had to say one thing actually i'd say you have to like people I think it's very hard to be a leader if you don't like people. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and that might sound incredibly, um, and by like, I mean, you're interested, you genuinely want to know about them, you genuinely care about them. Um, you know, if you don't... If I, if, I'm, if I may add something here, um, you know, it's also about the organization which they're leading. So if you're talking about business leaders in particular, I think leaders need different, uh, uh, businesses need different type of leadership at, uh, at different times. So for example, uh, take a company like Apple. It grew wonderfully uh, under uh, uh, Steve Jobs as a visionary, but uh, I firmly believe that Tim Cook took it to, to uh, with his uh, uh, financial acumen and ability to, to execute in a very, very almost militaristic style uh, I, I think that he took that company uh, 10 times larger. And if, uh, you know, it's all about, I think a lot is, a lot is about timing. And what, what fascinates me is uh, uh, if a leader can uh, go from the startup through to the corporate and remain true to, to, to themselves. This is, this yeah. is kind of interesting. That's a very good point because let's be honest there. And that's, and that's why, and sorry, I don't want to say that now that just proves that I'm right. <laughs> but that's exactly, but it sort of does like fit into what I'm trying to say is that's really what happens. If it's so rare. Now, of course, we have the stories of the Elon Musk and the Jeff Bezos and stuff like that. But it is so rare for the founder to actually take the company through. Usually they got to get rid of the founder because the founder's a great leader for one part of it. But then you need the, the you need a different leader for, for another part. Yeah. And it even grew, develops after that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so, so certainly. So one thing that I'd just underline that Mungo said, which is like textbook, it's like getting to know people. There's also an aspect of self-awareness, like knowing what you're good at and what you're not good at. And in a way, you have to put your ego on the shelf. That sometimes people think this charismatic ego is, is a charismatic leader who's very full of themselves is the stereotype but a good leader brings out the best in other people not 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 isn't and puts very often the leader is one who has to step aside uh, and the, the third thing which neither of you have mentioned which i think is really important is as well as being people orientated you have to take tough decisions and as Kimon mentioned a bit earlier sometimes you know you need to have a, a shareholder to talk to you know or maybe you mentioned it longer you know you're by your you're by yourself with difficult problems. And, you know, the leader has to be the one who ultimately carries the can, whether it's a good decision or a bad decision, they have to be able to take that decision. And it's not always, it's not always an easy role. And certainly, from my perspective, you had a baptism of fire coming into with, with and it was really, you know, of all the, you talk about good and bad luck in one way, you know, it's remarkable that now, after quite a period in 
Jaj, you've got the company through a very, very tough storm and into quite a with a strong team yeah. and money in the bank. And you're making money. I mean, you're making money. I mean, after your post pandemic, making money. I mean, and, that's, and, that's, all, that's, and that's, that's another that's, that's another thing in business sense. Like in the startup of business, there's this hunt for product market fit, finding something that people actually want to pay for. But then once you've got that. This a resolute obsession with efficiency, like making sure that whatever we do, we don't waste. We're ready to spend lots of money if it matters. It can be an expensive dinner with an important client. It's not a waste of money then, but not letting it fritter away on stuff that the customers don't don't care about at all. So, so certainly, those are, those are all perspectives on the same topic, and it's very hard to put your finger on. There are many different types of leader, but they have those things in common. So uh, to, to give you, to, to, to just close off on that note, a simple, simple thing, which if you had to ask me, what is my passion? My passion is developing people. I just love, there's no, nothing more rewarding for me than seeing a person uh, who I've had the, the pleasure to work with go far and beyond. That that is the most rewarding experience for me. Yeah, I will echo. I will echo that in my experience in 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 the, like the cool. That's that is actually one of the coolest things. Sort of side effects of founding a company that's successful is it's like holy crap! Look at these people. They come into the company. They they didn't know anything about this business. We've trained them up, and now they're like leading. They're like leading professionals in this space. They can get jobs anywhere. They can. It's just a really cool um, feeling. It's just a really cool. It's just a really cool feeling. You're actually positively impacting people's lives, and 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 it, that's what's that's that and that definitely feels good. <laughs> that definitely feels good. So you know, because you know, a lot of the time we sit here, we talk about money, right? Like, how much money did we make? Is it profitable? I mean, that's what business. That's the measurement. Often, I mean, that is unfortunately the measurement of success of a business is how profitable it is. Um, and so, you know, it's nice to have the, some other metrics to look at that are non that are non money related to, to give us the, a feeling of the, that we're actually doing good, basically, instead of just making money. Totally, totally. So I, I think we're drawing towards a close now. And Manga, is there anything that we haven't asked you about that's important? Like we're broadly in the area of entrepreneurship and leadership and not at great length because we appreciate that our listeners time is is, is valuable as well but it's kind it, of uh, maybe unfulfilled ambition so um when i was uh, not what not working for that for that nine months one of the things that i wanted to do was uh, i was looking for example there was a project called save the oceans i actually applied to 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 give my time free as charged as, as an engineer um, to, to that, I looked at to joining uh, UNESCO, uh, UN, uh, just to just to just to give back somehow. This was this was something, and somewhere somewhere down the line, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be be doing something more, because uh, I've been when when you have a fortunate life and you are um, you meet uh, uh, along your your life's journey, you meet the most incredible uh, mentors, tutors. Uh, friends, uh, people who who are remarkable themselves, um, you you you're receiving, you're receiving. I call myself a, a thief because I've always taken something from those people, something good, and and uh, I try to give it back. But uh, somewhere in unfulfilled ambitions is is uh, if I'm fortunate 
fortunate enough to 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 be around for the next 20 30 years uh, um which is which is there is some chance uh, i'm hoping that i will be able to to do something fingers crossed mongo we're counting on it something yeah. back for for humanity yeah because uh, uh, human, the human race as such is in a, is in a difficult place. Um, and uh, this, is, this is something which is it's an unfold ambition, yeah. Fantastic. Well, um, I was discussing with Kiman how we should end our podcast. And Kiman, would you like to close out this one? Um, no. I mean, not really. <laughs> but I'll do it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, Mungo, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really, uh, I, I, I really enjoy, uh, I really enjoy doing this, and you know, I actually know you really well, and I learned a lot of stuff about you that I that I didn't that I'd never heard before, and um, I just think you're an interesting person, and I think your I think your life is actually your story is inspiring um, for a lot of people, and so you know, thanks so much for taking taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much once again, Richard, for the invitation. And Kimon, always good to speak to you. Uh, you know, getting to know each other over years. Uh, it's a process of time and, and it takes years. So uh, I hope that this, uh, I look forward to, to the years ahead. Thank you again, Richard, for, and, and to the audience out there. Um, I don't know if anything I said was useful in any way, but, uh, uh, you know, I live in Krakow. Come and buy me coffee. I'll I'll give you some advice. I can I can I can hear your story. I wasn't expecting you to end like that. I'll buy you a beer. <laughs> we'll we'll put put uh, put whatever uh, contact details in the show notes, Richard, that Mungo uh, that that Mungo authorizes, and then totally. they can actually look him up for that. 